Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. The Johnson Report, no inquiry, everything up in the air. And there was a sense, and we talked about it yesterday, that this week could bring new information. Let's face it, this story has drip, 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 never stopped. And then, and then we have uh, David Johnson not calling the inquiry. And if there ever was a moment, and there's other things that the CSIS leakers want to say, you don't have to be a soothsayer to think that maybe they're going to jump out here. The other part of it is what is left behind. Will there eventually be an inquiry? And what have we learned here that we can't unsee? There are many things, certainly for me. As I read that report, joining us is Phil Gursky, President and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. Hi, Phil. How are you? Good, Arlene. It's been a while. How have you been? Hey, I'm okay, but this has been quite a story, Phil. Would you agree with me? There's a feeling in the air. It's not over. Well, it has been over 30 years, Arlene, and that's the issue. So, you know, for your listeners' education, I did work for CSIS for 15 years. Uh, not on the China file, on the terrorism file. And you and I have spoken about that in the past. But this file has been going on for a very, very long time. And CSIS has been quite diligent in collecting intelligence and assessing it and corroborating it and providing it to decision makers to help them keep them better informed. And yet I read the same report, Arlene, the Johnson report, and I just thought, like, we haven't made any progress here. So, you know, where does this thing end? Do we get more allegations, more leaks of information, which I don't support on principle as a former CSIS analyst. But I, I think that Canadians have a legitimate question as to uh, where is this whole thing going? Because China's not going to stop doing what it's doing. So what do we do as Canadians to provide and, to try and prevent that? And, you know, next step, so David Johnson says he's going to have another report in October. Many of us can't wait that long, Phil. And you have said what others are saying with the kind of experience that you, you've had. This was not new. Phil, what are you, people like yourself, what are you saying to each other as this unfolds? Oh, we say a lot to each other. <laughs> what can you tell us off. you're saying to um, each other? You know, we're, we're all frustrated, darling. We, you know, we all spent our careers with, with one purpose and one purpose in mind only, to go to work every day, you know, do our best to collect intelligence, make sure it was as accurate as we possibly could. And there's no guarantee of 100% accuracy. We realize that. But, you know, intelligence services, their raison d'etre is to collect intelligence and share it with their clients. And, you know, we talk about another report. Well, how, how many reports is this going to require? Because like I said, CSIS has been advising the government on this particular issue for the better part of three decades. Former uh, CSIS director Dick Fadden said that as well. And I just don't see we're, we're kicking this can down the road. And, and, and I'm not a conspiracy theorist, Arlene, but it almost sounds that like the government hopes that if we just kind of keep putting this off, putting this off, that Canadians will lose interest and help with them Blue Jays and then move on to something else and, and, you know, absolve the government of any responsibility in this regard. You know, Phil, you said something interesting, and it it coincides with what the CSIS leaker said, that they were doing this at great risk, but they were doing it because they felt Canadians needed to know. And I know you're not jumping in with all the things that people like you were saying to each other, but surely that has to be part of it. Is there a little bit of a cathartic feel, may I say here, 
from those who have been frustrated that at least it's out in the open. I mean, here we are talking about it and those frustrations. I, I think so. Um, I had an op-ed in the Ottawa Citizen on Friday in this, in this regard to try to inform Canadians as to why we do what we do. And, and you know, I'm, I'm very careful. I didn't release the kind of details that the leaker did. I understand the frustration the person may have experienced, but I do think the Canadians have to know that intelligence agencies are doing their best because, in all honesty, Arlene, when I read the report that Mr. Johnson had produced, I was insulted that he basically said that the security services aren't doing their job properly by disseminating intelligence. For, for God's sakes, we are. We're doing the utmost to make sure the government's informed. It's, it's not our fault that the government doesn't use our intelligence. Um, we can only do the best we can. And, you know, we, we don't make decisions. We provide information to help decisions, better decisions being made. And the report kind of poo-pooed all that. And so a lot of us are kind of, we do, none of my colleagues support the, the leak in, in itself because that's not what we did for a living. But a lot of it is kind of nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Well, maybe this isn't a bad thing that Canadians have a better insight uh, as to what CSIS knew and when it knew it. You know, as you said, we have been doing our jobs. One of the things that stuck out to me, and there were many, and I referenced it yesterday, is the fact that in the report, David Johnson said messages were sent, for instance, to the public safety minister. They didn't get there. No one knows why. No one knows where they went. Did it go to the ether? Is it, why was it sent somewhere and they did not receive it? Phil, what did you make of that? Um, I was confused. Because before mm-hmm. I was with CSIS, I was with CSE, Communication Security mm-hmm. Establishment, the Signals Intelligence mm-hmm. Organization. And I know for a fact as to how distribution dissemination works. Uh, we have liaison officers that sit in the offices of senior officials and hand deliver this stuff with a, with a nice pink bow on top and answer any questions they might have and, and send feedback you know, as to what other intelligence that they need. The dissemination problem is not the problem of CSIS and CSE. And I would go one further, Arlene. One of the issues that I and many of my colleagues feel, and we're a little bit biased, I mean, I worked 32 years in Intel, so I, I'm not neutral in this regard, is that overall, Canada has a very poor intelligence culture. And what I mean by that is that it's a succession of governments, not just the current one, but previous ones, we find a lot of officials don't get intelligence, don't like it, uh, think it's dirty, think it isn't usable, think it complicates things, maybe it, go, it goes against accepted wisdom. Um, unlike our partners in the in the United States and the UK and countries like Australia, which have very robust intelligence cultures, part of the problem is that the intelligence is not shared because people don't put much stock in it. Uh, I don't know how, what, what you can do to change that culture. I've seen intelligence make a huge difference in decision making. But, you know, as they say, you can lead a horse to water, but et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the first time we heard it, this lack of culture, it made me certainly stand up and take notice. And there you've said it again, that it's an attitude and a feeling that that is perhaps rampant in the government. Is is this culture, and you've brought it up and others are bringing up now, did you hear that in this report and the way the information was given to Canadians? I think so. Uh, again, you know, Mr. Johnson po- reported that there was an issue with dissemination. To me, uh, you know, once the intelligence services hand off the intelligence, it's up to their clients to do something with it. So, you know, we don't get access to Prime Minister like, like, like let's say, like the Americans do. I had a very good friend who used to do the presidential daily brief. She got like a half an hour every day with the mm-hmm. president. 
and, and Gabe Breeze. We don't have that here in Canada. So we rely on officials that understand the importance of intelligence. And if the PM has to know something, they flag it for him and they make sure he gets it. If they don't put any stock in it, uh, or due to the lack of intelligence culture or whatever reasons I already cited, then the PM doesn't know and decisions don't get made as a consequence. And then there's this plausible deniability. Oh, we didn't receive the information. Well, it's not because it wasn't delivered to you. It's because you chose not to pass it on. So th- that's what I take away from a lot of this. Okay. That Mr. Johnson put the blame on, uh, squarely on, on the, at the uh, heels of CSIS. It's not our fault. It's the fault of the, of the, of the officials that received intelligence in the first place. Phil, you know, you were just referencing the piece that you did in the Ottawa Citizen. And it, the CSIS person did a, the leaker did an op-ed in the Globe. And Aaron O'Toole has been writing. I mean, everybody is writing about this. You and I were just talking about maybe there's a feeling of relief. This is out in the open. Phil, how dangerous is it right now for Canada, in your opinion? From when this began, there was a a sense, certainly from those in the military, and as you say, Dick Fadden and others, saying that there's a there's a feeling that our allies maybe aren't even respecting us. How how crucial is this moment, in your opinion? Well, that's a great question, Arlene. Um, to me, there's no doubt that a lot of people are looking at Canada, our traditional allies, and you've heard the term the Five Eyes, which is the Anglosphere. It's, mm-hmm. it's been a post-World War II uh, intelligence arrangement. Very sensitive intelligence is shared amongst the five partners. And, um, I, I mean, I'm no longer in the inside. I, I retired in 2015, mm-hmm. but I, I kind of get the feeling that some of our closest partners may, and I stress may, be asking, how, how serious is Canada anymore? I mean, you've got 30 years of evidence that the People's Republic of China, amongst other nations, have been mucking about in our country, uh, harassing people, threatening people who are dissidents of the regime. We have the allegations that China interfered in our last two federal elections, targeted by Mr. O'Toole when he was the head of the Conservative Party. And yet we get this kick the can down the road out to by the government. Uh, if I was a Canadian ally, I, I'd be asking some serious questions is, uh, how serious is Canada going to take these types of things? I, I don't think we're going to kick out of the alliance anytime soon. I wouldn't go that far. But it strikes me that, you know, that there's reasons why you have the, the, the US agreement to nuclear submarines in, in the South Pacific. There's reasons why you have the Quad, in which Canada's not, not part of it. And, and I think that, you know, defense-wise, you're not spending nearly enough on defense, as, as NATO requires, not the 2% per year. That's the standard. So I think it is maybe a dangerous time for Canada that, a country that, you know, performed, punched well above its weight uh, militarily, intelligence for decades, is now seen, being seen as a bit of a slacker. And if that's the case, uh, we're, we're a net consumer, Arlene, of intelligence mm-hmm. in the sense that we get much more mm-hmm. than we produce. So are they going to provide it for free if we're not, you know, pointing up to the bar anymore? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, and that echoes other things as we talk about our ability to defend ourselves and what we spend on defense. Phil, you said this has been going on for a long time. You're not alone. How long is this? Right now, it's a liberal government problem. In my opinion, this is the biggest deal that Justin Trudeau has faced in power. That is my opinion. But Phil, how long... Has this been a problem for Canada? Is it just this government? No, it's not. It's certainly been going on. As I said, you know, CSIS was created way back in 1984, so almost four decades ago. And and one of the, the main investigations that CSIS has been involved in, this is no state secret, would be the People's Republic of China, what their spies are doing here. And they steal our technology, they harass our citizens, et cetera. 
I, I can't speak to election interference per se, Arlene, in terms of how long far back that goes. But there's no question that China has been doing things that are against our interests for a very, very long time. CSIS and other agencies have been providing the intelligence on those activities to multiple governments of both political stripes, mm-hmm. so conservatives and liberals, for the better part of 40, 30, 40 years. So, no, it's not new. The election interference is maybe the icing on the cake, if I can use that term, because this is a real kick at Canada. We're going to try and interfere with your elections and, and affect them and influence them in ways that benefit us, don't benefit Canadian voters. So to me, I think it's it's kind of reached an exclamation point right now. And the government's response has been absurd. It has been pathetic by trying to pretend there's nothing to see here and there's no, no need to take action. I, as a Canadian, I feel insulted in that regard. You know, Richard Fadden, um, when I spoke to him, talked about this being a wake-up call moment. And we know that phrase gets used over and over again. But clearly, we are at this point. You know, I was just listening to you and how long it's been going on. And I think he said, too, and he's not alone. Other national security people and former CSIS people have said such things that maybe part of the mindset is is what's causing this. We've been so blessed here in Canada. We don't get it. We don't we don't understand that there's stuff going on out there. We just think life is good and we don't have to perhaps participate in what led to making it good at this moment, Bill. I think that's a good way of putting it. And you can extend that to defense as well. I mean, we're, we're blessed that the Americans are our neighbors. And there's no way the Americans will let anything happen in Canada because it'll affect mm-hmm. their national security as well. So we can rely on them from a defense perspective. But I think that most Canadians truly do live in a blissful ignorance. And that's not necessarily a bad thing some of the time. But, you know, there's a reason why we have CSIS and CSE and the RCMP and national defense. It costs a lot of money, yes, but it's the price of being free. It's the price of having information so you can make better decisions. And I guess I, I wish more Canadians were aware of that, which is one of the reasons why, uh, since my so-called retirement, my kids tell mm-hmm. me I suck at retirement, by the way, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in 2015, why I talk to people like yourself to try to give mm-hmm. some kind of you know, bit of insight as to what, why this matters. And I think Canadians deserve to know. They do, you know, so as we we hurl responsibility at the government, and that's what we elect them for to keep us safe, and it's important. But we do we have to look inside ourselves too, Phil? I always say governments will do what they feel they have to do to get votes, and this is not a vote getter. You're right, and you know, thesis isn't going to, you know. Isn't going to you know bang the drum loudly and say look listen to me listen to me kind of thing because they realize the nature of their job is very sensitive. So, uh, but I do think Canadians have to wake up and smell the coffee. Um, you, you know we have to have enough resources. I know that these agencies are under resourced both financially and human and in terms of you know humans to work these jobs because it hasn't been seen as a priority. You know the one stat I love to, to cite Arlene is that at the end of the Second World War, Canada had the fourth largest navy in the world. I think we're now behind Latvia. I'm not sure Latvia even had a navy. But it just goes to show how little I think that Canadians in the past 75 years have taken our our, our security and defense for granted uh, and, and don't want to spend the money on it. And, you know, we're, we're in a tough time now. Post-COVID budgets are mm-hmm. you know, well in the hawk for a lot of things. But the bottom line is if you don't, uh, you don't spend money on it, you don't get the kind of information and protection that you deserve. Whether it's a pandemic or wildfire, like there is in Alberta and the wildfires out in BC or 
it is Hurricane Fiona that hit the Atlantic provinces or in the United States of America, Hurricane Ian, all of these things. We need to communicate, and sometimes that blessed internet service goes down. Joining me is Glenn Morrison, who is president of the Desert Radio Amateur Transmitting Society. It's in Palm Springs, and it's a club dedicated to everything ham radio. Glenn Morrison, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Good afternoon, Arlene. Uh, Nice to be able to talk to you. Great to have you and perfect guest for this Sunday. And also feeding in as I, you know, in that intro, kind of setting it up. One of the things that intrigues me about what you're doing in the ham radio people is we've been taught a few lessons, haven't we, Glenn? I know that people have always believed in these kind of things and certainly ham radio in an emergency. We've had a couple. Glenn is ham radio having a moment. Oh, yes. Uh, Well, in You know, out here in California, there's always the threat of uh, earthquakes. I live about seven miles from the San Andreas Fault. So that's something that's always on our mind. And, you know, people think, oh, it won't happen in my lifetime. Uh, And uh, and it may not, but you should just be prepared for it anyway. And uh, during uh, the the hurricanes that hit... uh, Tahiti several years ago, and then just more recent ones uh, through the Caribbean, like Puerto Rico and stuff. Uh, for the first few weeks, the only communications out of those islands was uh, was ham radio. A lot of lessons learned these days. Glenn, maybe we should explain what they are and how they work. I mean, some people are so far removed from this, clicking on Facebook and Twitter and the Internet and all that magic. But before that, Glenn, there were ham radios. What do they look like? Do they still look the same? Well, that's that's hard to say because I collect vintage radios that have got <laughs> vacuum tubes in them, uh, and now they're all uh, you know with an analog dial and everything. And now they've mm. got uh, uh, everything's all digitized. Uh, in fact, uh, some of the radios, uh, uh, some of the modes uh, of getting the information out are are digital, uh, and so it's uh, it's it's gone that direction, but. Um, uh, yeah, it's um, it has changed in the last, uh, particularly about the about the last ten years or so. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's because you can't expect the uh, your your cell phone to be there; they'll be jammed. Yeah. Uh, just uh, from wildfires and things uh, recently, mm-hmm. uh, everybody gets on their cell phone, and the cell phones go down; they get overloaded. So uh, uh, ham radio is uh, one of the ways to. Uh, to work around that and get out messages, to work with police and fire, uh, to get message to your aunt Sadie in, uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in Manitoba that uh, you're okay, uh, things like that. It, uh, it's it's going to be about the only way to get uh, get things out. All right. So, is maybe tell us who you're communicating with? It's is it one on one, or is and and you're using good old fashioned radio frequencies there? How do they work? Uh, Well, um, actually, kind of all of the above. Uh, Mm -hmm. We have groups that do nothing but 
handle traffic, which is a, a term for, for message handling. Uh, and if I wanted to get to uh, a message to my Aunt Sadie in, in Manitoba, um, you know, I could generate a message and using the radio, uh, send that message. And there's ways to do it that will actually maintain the integrity of a form, a radiogram, just like a telegram. Mm-hmm. And it can get passed uh, on from person to person, kind of a link, cha- uh, a link and uh, a relay. And uh, uh, it'll eventually somebody will call Aunt Sadie and say, uh, hey, I got a, got a message for you from, uh, from Glenn in California, and he's okay. Uh, on the other hand, there are groups of us that get together. There's a group called ARIES, Amateur Radio Emergency Services. And uh, I tell people we're kind of like yeast. We're self-rising. We're self-activating. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, and so when an emergency happens, when something happens, uh, we can just deploy ourselves or wait for somebody from the city or you know, some kind of government entity to say, we need some help. We need some eyes and, and boots on the ground, and we need to deploy some people to find out what's going on. And then a little bit later is a group called RACES, but they're, mm-hmm. they're tied into FEMA, and they have to wait to be activated. And then we all tie into, uh, like, city and county emergency operations centers. It, with all the televisions and all the stuff to keep track of all the police and fire and all that kind of stuff. How does it feel when a disaster is happening and this all springs into action? It must be electric, Glenn. Oh, it is. Uh, you know, and it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to do, and we, we drill for these uh, uh, local areas mm-hmm. groups. Uh, we, we drill with uh, local hospitals in case of for like mass shootings or pandemics or uh, uh, things like that, and we uh, we actually participate with the local hospitals that uh, for handling messages and maybe their phone system goes down. Somebody runs through uh, the fiber optics with a uh, with a backhoe, uh, and they need to be able to talk between emergency and ER and where the nurse pool is and things like that. And we can do that within the hospitals, too. So, uh, uh, yes, we, we plan to usually have a little supply of food and water with us because you might not know how long you might uh, might be out there. Wow. So you just spring into action. I, I had no idea this was so well organized. So after, as we say, we've received a few lessons here. Glenn, are, are the amount of people using these is it growing? Uh it's about staying the same. Uh, the, the people in the hobby are growing, but also some of us are kind of aging out. Uh, but um, um, we've had several friends pass in the last month or so. But, uh, uh, yes, we try to, uh, to encourage people. And in our particular club, uh, the Desert Rats, uh, are, are always uh, bring, trying to bring people together and, and practice this. We have... Uh, uh, out here, we get together every other Monday uh, on the radio, and uh, the first Monday of the month is uh, Emergency Power Night, 
you're encouraged to check into this group uh, using your portable or mobile or battery-powered or solar-powered radio that you would use in case of emergency if there wasn't wasn't power to your uh, to your station. Glenn, you know, as you just explained how it went from this and there and you're getting your message to Aunt Sadie, it kind of sounds like social media before there was social media, doesn't it? Oh, that's absolutely true. Uh, Ham radio is uh, you know, like the original social media. Uh, people, uh, you know, if we're not doing things for emergencies and stuff, which is, you know, relatively pretty rare, uh, People just get on the air and uh, and chat, and there are people who uh, have long-term friendships with people they've never met in, say, <laughs> from California to Australia, and they meet on the air uh, on a certain frequency at a certain time, and they chat just like you call up your friends and chat. And sometimes, and that's the nice thing about radio, is that there can be a whole group. You might have uh, three or four people all in there taking kind of turns and talking and having a conversation and and sharing information with each other and things like that. Wife, kids, what the job's doing, uh, whatever's going on. And you, they can just kind of take turns and uh, uh, you all do it at one time instead of uh, like on a telephone where you can only talk to one person at a time on the radio on a given frequency you can have as many people as you want uh all talking and kind of taking turns and making stuff you know making remarks and things so and we've been doing that for a hundred years now literally so uh um, so take that twitter yeah take take that Uh, glenn let me ask you you said you know how the wife is doing is this a guy thing or there are women a lot of women Uh, no actually uh but actually um (laughs) youngest person in our club we've got about almost 180 members uh the the youngest member is i think she's about 13 a girl uh our club has got about 20 percent of uh of the members are licensed uh ham radio that are women so uh yeah pretty much it's kind of a guy thing but uh uh uh, but like i said there's uh, about 20 percent of the club uh are women. So that, that, and that could licenses. change. Yeah, that, that could change. Glenn, let me ask you, you know, as you talk about the, uh, how it works and going from person to person and how you do the drills, are there people who are good at this? Is there a skill involved? Oh, there is. And it's something that you, you kind of have to practice. Uh, but there, there are still people, old-fashioned uh, code, you know, Morse code, CW, uh, that they pass radiograms using CW, and that's the that's a good way to do it over big distances. And um, uh, but yes, uh, one of our other Monday night groups that uh, we get together, we practice uh, handling um, uh, like hospital forms or radiogram forms, and you fill one of these out ahead of time, and then when mm-hmm. it's your turn, you send it over the air. And uh, the guys on the other end uh, receive it, and it comes up in the form, and uh, it's actually printable. So you can print this form out or email it to somebody, but you have to practice doing that. 
um, you know, because there's a certain amount of skill and things that you have to do to practice on how to keep all this uh, this stuff all going. Is there a certain kind of person that likes to do this? I'm looking at a picture of you, and you got a baseball hat on, a T-shirt, and a ponytail there. Is there a, is there a dress code, and is there a type of person who loves to ham here? Uh, well, let's face it. Uh, probably, <laughs> as a gross generalization, we're all kind of geeky. But, uh, uh, no, there's... Uh, uh, well, a lot of people are in... Uh, electronics and engineering. I've got friends that are broadcast engineers. I've got friends that uh, uh, were news cameramen and, and editors and things for uh, big news networks. Uh, and then one of the guys down the street, he, uh, uh, he owns a, uh, he's an electrician and he owns a, a pool service, you know, for swimming pools and stuff. So it's pretty much a good cross section of, uh, uh, of of people uh, with a slight slight bend toward a little bit geekiness because let's mm-hmm. face it nobody's ever seen an electron so it just kind yeah. of all works on this theory but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah just uh, pretty much just a, a little bit of everything uh, good variety of ages the last testing we did we had uh, uh, three high school students. Uh, pass their exams. So, um, <clears throat> um, you know, you got it all little bits of everything. Do, it. It. I want to ask you, Glenn, people. I'm sorry. We're almost out of time. I got to ask you, do you save lives? Do, do you make a difference? Yes. Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I've, uh, I've listened to, uh, to, uh, people working with, uh, somebody with a lost hiker, up in the mountains, and uh, one of the guys on the on the hiking team, uh, they lost somebody, and he put a call out who got a hold of the uh, the county sheriff, and uh, they all worked communications because the sheriff couldn't talk to this guy, but the guy sitting in his house was on the telephone and on the radio, and uh, and and they found the the lost hiker. Uh, then again, a friend of mine who was handicapped, uh, fell and, uh, in his home and was home alone. And he managed to get to his radio and put out a call and, uh, they rolled the paramedics for him. So, uh, oh, well, yes, that, yeah. than, even not counting things like big natural disasters. Yeah, uh, but just people in trouble and they get on there and you can rely on it. Glenn, we're almost out of time. We just have seconds left. I, I, I do have to ask you, do you really have an aunt, Sadie? I'm sorry, what? Oh, no, do you I have don't. an aunt. <laughs> no, I don't. It's part of your uh, stick. I, I don't I have an aunt, Sadie, uh, but... Um, um, you wish you did. Nope. Uh, <laughs> and actually, my actually my my mother's brother, my grandmother's brother, was born in in Manitoba. But All other right. than that, uh, no Aunt Sadies and uh, no relatives in in Canada. Polling has been robust. How about that in Alberta? And a lot of the final predictions, final numbers are being laid out today. We're going to talk about some of them with Mark Henry, who is with Think HQ, a Calgary-based polling company. Mark, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us before the election. Carlene, thank you for the invitation. 
All right, let me ask you, um, you know, how unusual is it at this time to have things so close? There's The polling companies have different numbers, but a lot of them are showing one thing. It's a nail biter here. Well, as someone born in Alberta, I can tell you quite honestly, we are not used to competitive elections. Uh, <laughs> you usually know before the election campaign starts who's going to win. Um, so this one is very rare and very, very competitive. It is. You know, some of the companies have given it just by a fraction to the UCP and some to the NDP. What are you calling, first of all? And then we'll drag them all in. You know what? I, I, I don't like making uh, seat projections and that sort of thing. I mean, we, we don't do the level of analysis you need to do riding calls. But I, I would say, you know, 80 percent chance the UCP are going to form the next government, 20 percent chance for the NDP. And I don't think it's going to be by a huge margin. I mean, if the NDP win, it's going to be by a couple of seats. If if the UCP win, if they break 50 seats, they're pretty lucky. All right. Let me ask you, too, because it's so close, uh, we've all experienced this at least once in our lifetime to wake up in the morning and go, wow, that was weird. Because if the if the thing happens a couple of times in certain ridings, the whole election can turn around. What ridings and how many ridings could perform this task, Mark? Well, and, and this is the tricky part. I mean, first past the post as an electoral system, it tends to exaggerate what happens at the ballot box. And this can be, you know, lead to some strange outcomes um, in elections that are this close. But if you look at um, you know, province-wide, the, the the ridings to really keep an eye on are going to be places like Morinville, St. Albert, Calgary, Acadia, Calgary Elbow, um, Strathcona, Sherwood Park, Lesser Slave. Like, there, there's really about ten or eleven ridings uh, across the province that are going to make the difference between what happens in this election. And most of them are found within the city of Calgary. There's 26 seats within Calgary city limits, and most of them are quite competitive. All right. One of the things I was looking at, at some of the findings of David Coletto and Abacus, and he's uh, they've gone very, very granular on this. There's demographics, age, gender. How much is that playing? You know, we all hear um, certain parts of our country changing and Calgary is is a part of Canada that appears to be changing. And that shows up electorally, as we know. Does play a role. Um, you know, Calgary's a funny place because it's always been a city that has had a lot of inward migration. It's always been a young city compared to uh, the rest of Canada. So this is nothing new. Um, but when you look at the, the support for the different parties across the province, NDP support tends to be more urban. It's younger. It's more women, particularly women under the age of 35 are heavily going to vote NDP. Um, conservative vote, like traditionally conservative vote. It tends to be a little bit older. It tends to be more male. Um, there's some interesting demographics uh, to look at in terms of education levels. If you've got a university degree, you're much more likely to vote for the NDP. If you don't, you're more likely to vote for um, the UCP. You know, and the issues here, they swerved. We have the normal ones, health care, the economy. Then we had the wildfires, leadership, stepping up. How much of a wrench in the works did that throw? Or did it throw a favor to you know, one I, or both I, of these candidates? I, I don't know whether it, it favored one candidate over another. And it did give Danielle Smith an opportunity to... 
to show leadership and and do so, you know, sort of being a, a strong uh, a strong voice and a stable leader during a, an emergency across the province. So that probably helped her a little bit. But I mean, uh, there's been a lot of talk about healthcare. There's been a lot of talk about. Um, you know, our relationship with Ottawa, a lot of talk about education. They, 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 there's a myriad of issues that they've dealt with. At the end of the day, this is kind of boiling down to a referendum either on leadership or on the party. And and I'll explain that. So, you know, for the Conservatives, there's far less resistance to the UCP party among voters than there is to Daniel Smith. So, you know, they, they are talking about the NDP and the NDP party and what risks they pose to the uh, Alberta economy. The reverse is true for the NDP. It's a bit of a paradox. So there's there's far less resistance to uh, Rachel Notley personally than there is to the NDP brand. And so, you know, the Conservatives are going to try and position this as a referendum on the NDP party and the economy. And if you're the NDP, you're going to want to try and turn this into a referendum on Danielle Smith. It is. She's had her... She's had her moments here. I've been referencing the New York Times piece yesterday <laughs> that <laughs> discussed here. Watch this in Alberta, they said. The premier is running for election, and here's what she said. Is is this setting a little bit of a record here? As you said, you know, there's unusual stuff that's happening. And earlier we talked to a political analyst who was really pointing out what some of that stuff is that we have. I don't know, what do we call them? Controversial remarks. But you also have this, the pandemic coming back as well. It's so yeah. unique what we're watching and Daniel Smith's performance in it. A lot of what's, uh, what Daniel Smith has said was prior to her becoming premier, uh, you know, running for the leadership, she said some fairly controversial things, things that she said as talk show host, some controversial things. Uh, but there are also instances where she was premier. Uh, where she had some lapses in judgment, particularly in and around, uh, you know, a conversation with uh, uh, Arthur Pulowski, uh, who is now a convicted pastor, uh, who was involved in the Coots border crossing, uh, or blockade, rather. I mean, and the ethics commission actually came down and said she broke the conflict of uh, interest act. Um, so it, it, there are things that she's done uh, that have, have certainly... Um, Pushed some voters towards the NDP, and it's also created some challenges for people who are, um, you know, traditionally uh, good, have a good reputation for voting, good uh, record for voting, and traditionally vote, you know, to support a, a conservative party. They don't always like what the conservatives have done in the past four years, but it's a nice, safe, comfortable vote for them. And there's a portion of those voters who are now reluctant, conflicted, call it what you want, who are now questioning, you know, what what are they going to do on election day? Are they going to stay home? Are they going to vote for the, the NDP? I mean, most of them don't want to vote for the NDP. That They may spoil their ballot. But so it'll be interesting to see the, the turnout on election day and whether that's strong. If it's strong turnout on election day, that probably says that uh, the Conservatives have reassured their, their voter base. If election day turnout is, you know, a bit weak, um, they may be in, in for a surprise. It could. I mean, uh, David Coletto, and I referenced this earlier as well, is showing a, what would happen in his polling if Daniel Smith was not the leader and it wouldn't even be a race. So strange times. Yeah, I, I mean, at the start of the campaign, we looked at, you know, we know who voted uh, which way in the last election based upon what they reported. There was one quarter of 
2019 conservative voters who said that they did not approve of Daniel Smith, and, and most of it was quite strong. Um, that's a tough place to start. So they, they've lost some of that vote. It's migrated over to the NDP. I, you know, a lot of people are talking about renting their vote to the NDP this time. It may not be a permanent uh, place for them. But then there are about, you know, 10 to 15 percent of that 2019 conservative vote who are still sitting in undecided and deciding what it is they're going to do. And, you know, in Alberta, we have traditionally had less than stellar turnout rates. Um, largely because of the, the lack of competition. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see whether turnout um, even comes close to, to the high turnout that we saw in 2019. If it's, if it's below 60 percent, um, that may mean that some of those conflicted conservatives are just saying, eh, no, I'm going to sit this one out. Yeah, and sit it out. And then they're under fire on social media for doing that. People are saying, don't sit it out. You got to vote. You got to vote. But, Mark but, Henry. You know, if, yeah. if the conservatives can reassure them by election day, then they've got this one. Tina Turner passing away this week. And it's one of those deaths that deserves a, an extreme examination. It's been getting that way. And just so many tributes and so many things to say here on every level of music. It wasn't just the songs. It wasn't just what she did. It was her life and the things that she accomplished and how she did. Alan Cross joining us live, broadcaster with Q107, 102 The Edge, commentator for Global News, and one of the country's finest music historians. Alan, good afternoon. Thank you for being here. Yeah, this this was awfully sad. Um, but the weird thing was Tina Turner retired from touring and performing and when she was 68. So she was sort of frozen in time for a lot of us. And we didn't realize that she was getting older. We didn't realize how sick she became in the 2010s. So, uh, you know, for her, uh, I guess her image of 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 her uh, was was frozen in the 80s and 90s and we just didn't expect her, her to be this old and to die. It's true and there are many celebrities who are like that and it also means that somehow she got into a certain place with all of us. Uh, you know, talk about crossover. I mean, was she rock? Was she ry- rhythm? I'm like what was Tina Turner? And whatever it was, she planned it and she could be played everywhere, Alan. How would you define her? Well, she had two uh, definite aspects to her career. The first was with Ike in uh, the 1960s, and she was definitely some sort of R&B slash rock and roll hybrid. Back then, she was basically the the queen of rock and roll. Uh, Then she falls onto some some weird times in the 1970s. She went through a series of solo albums that did nothing. She was actually dropped by her record label, Capitol, or was about to be dropped. But then the executive in charge of her career went for dinner with David Bowie, and he told him that, uh, yeah, you know, I think Tina's done. And Bowie says, no, she's not. You were going to re-sign her. So he did. And that put her on the road to the Private Dancer album in 1984, which is when everything aligned, all the stars aligned. She had the right songs, the right image, uh, the right producer, the right label, everything. And for some some inexplicable reason, this, this should not have happened. She was a woman in her early 40s, and she became an MTV star at the same time as people like Cindy Lauper and Madonna. I mean, that just doesn't happen. Yet, uh, yet there she was. 
So true. And how did it happen? I mean, as I talk about that crossover and Private Dancer and that album, it just went everywhere. It was a strange right. album. And so- I, I have to say that I, I wasn't really a fan of it at the time because it just was played so much. I'm just being honest. Yeah, it it uh, it was a massive record. Sold about 12 million copies in North America alone, and sold much more in Europe. She was actually bigger in Europe than she was in North America. Mm-hmm. Believe that she was Madonna level um, famous in 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 Europe. She came out with this album at pretty much the right time because MTV was at its peak of influence, and with MTV, you needed to look as good as you sounded. Maybe even you need to look better than you sounded. <laughs> Let's just and, say it. Yeah. And, and here was this, this woman who had this arresting physical and yeah. visual image with the hair and the clothes and the legs the and the high heels and, the, yeah. and everything else. And it just, it just fit. And she fit into a weird sort of thing because the kids would be watching MTV for their pop for their pop stars. Uh, but then mom and dad would wander into the room every once in a while when a Tina Turner video was on. I go, hey, I know who she is. I grew up with her. And she actually had the effect of drawing in parents into the MTV culture. And that was another big part of, of, of her appeal. So she became one of these cross-generational artists. The kids loved her and the parents loved her as well. It's true. She didn't have that forbidden hyper cool image she did i mean to the public she was very acceptable wasn't she i guess yeah maybe that's it but she at the same time she was full of energy and very sexy and and uh you know confident i think the the, her confidence is the thing that really uh attracted a lot of people but then that confidence was also um I, I guess tempered, cut with uh, vulnerability. You know, a song like "Private yeah. Dancer," for example, a very vulnerable song written by Mark Knopfler mm-hmm. of Dire Straits, and then a song like uh, "What's Love Got to Do with It." The same sort of thing. There was a strength, but an underlying sense of vulnerability to it. And by this time, we had known her story with with Ike. Mm-hmm. You know, gave her the name Tina Turner back in the 1950s, but then immediately trademarked her name so that if she ever tried to get out from under his thumb, she would have to leave with nothing, including her stage name. She finally got rid of Ike in 1976, famously leaving him in a hotel room, and she had 36 cents and a gas credit card in her pocket. In 1978, she divorces him finally, and uh, she gave him just about everything just so she could maintain her name, her stage name, Tina Turner. Uh, and then it was after that where you know she had had the four solo albums, none of which had done very well through the 1970s, but then uh, she, she, after 1979, and a fourth album, and this this threat to to have her dropped uh, is when everything turned around, and she became not only this this example of 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 a, of a giant pop and rock star, but also uh, this this confident woman who was, had escaped a, a an abusive relationship and managed to turn her life around. So she was uh, a hero on on many different levels throughout the 1980s and 1990s. And then, you know, when she gets to the 2000s, like, you know what, that's it. I'm done. I think I've done everything that I can possibly do. 68, she uh, decides that she's going to retire. Uh, meanwhile, though, she's had these health problems. She was diagnosed with very high blood pressure in the 1970s, never really did anything about it. Uh, that eventually led to some kidney problems after about, well, actually, there was a stroke in 2013. Then she ended up with uh, intestinal cancer in 2016. And in 2017, 
the hypertension and everything else that she had been trying, including some homeopathic memories, caused her kidneys to fail. And she needed a kidney transplant in 2017, which uh, the and the donor was was her husband, Erwin. Yeah, who was uh, yeah. younger than him. Are uh, we younger than her? And, yeah, and, uh, what a what a lovely story, Alan. Let me let me ask you. You know, as a woman, I was just struck, as we often are, when somebody passes away. Something I didn't really realize what she accomplished for women because it really was incredible. There were not a lot of female rock stars when she, she made it. And secondly, they copied her, you know, Mick Jagger, as I said earlier, taking notes from her moves, changing the way he does stuff. That's pretty incredible legacy to have. Yeah. When you, when you, when Mick Jagger says that uh, Tina Turner was a mentor, you know, he's not kidding. I know. You know, uh, when when she started getting uh, you know the hits in the mid '60s with like with uh, her their version of Proud Mary and uh, River Deep Mountain High and you know all those songs, uh, there was nobody doing anything like that. She was straddling this this era, this 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 um, uh, the, this scene between the Chitlin Circuit, which she and the Ike Turner Band uh, played relentlessly through the. 50s and 60s, and the wider world of rock and roll. And there was no one who sounded like her, because again, if you go back to the 1960s, you know, you were, uh, uh, girls were supposed to, you know, sing pretty mm-hmm. and look nice. Yeah. They, they weren't supposed to have the kind of um, that we saw with Tina yeah. Turner. Nobody sounded like her. Nobody had a voice like her. The, the closest comparison might be Janis Joplin, who came later. But, um, you know, she she was doing things for for music. Forget about, you know, doing it for women. She was doing it for for humans, taking it into a place that it really hadn't been before. And if you've got people like David Bowie and and Mick Jagger looking at you and thinking, you know, I can learn from you. Well, that, that tells you everything you need to know. Really does. And and he was pretty proud of it, too. And as you say, you know, David Bowie, what was it? Do you think that? that drew her to them? What element? Because she was, was it the physique and the talent? I mean, or did she, she have some kind of a package? You know, we always want to know, can you bottle that? What was it? No, <laughs> with her, you couldn't. She was, mm-hmm. she just had something that, you know, she was the complete package, but what, what was that? I don't know. Um, all we know is that whenever she appeared with any of these people, you know, with Brian Adams and that, uh, in his song, uh, it's only love uh, dancing with Mick Jagger on stage at Live Aid in 1985. Uh, you weren't looking at Brian Adams, and you weren't looking at Mick Jagger. You were looking at Tina Turner. She had that kind of magnetism and that ability to really command attention with you know the moment she stepped on stage. And uh, like right now, I know everybody who's listening to us is hearing her voice in their head. Because it was that distinctive, that powerful, and that um, that indelible. It's true. As you said that, it's just absolutely true. You know, it's amazing, too, as we just can't, I can't get her out of my mind this week because you're seeing pictures of her on social media and with, you know, everybody, everybody, especially in the 60s and 70s and Jimi Hendrix and everyone. They, she was welcomed in ways that I, I just can't think of too many women at that time who were welcomed in that group. No, that's true. She, uh, again, 
go back to this idea of of her being such a trailblazer for for not just women but for you know black women. Uh, yeah, it, it's hard to imagine the history of rock and roll without her. Um, but the the issue with her is that she was a fixture for so long, and you, you know, just begin to accept her as a part of the, the the landscape. But that's not that's that would be doing her a disservice because of all the things that she did, all the people that she influenced, and the way her sound and image and and style um, worked its way through so much in music. I, I, there's not a diva today that doesn't owe something to to Tina Turner. And I think a lot of young singers would be, you know, who who rely on, you know, pitch perfect vocal performances thanks to some studio trickery. They would do well to to study what Tina Turner did without those studio tricks to create such a, a powerful and, and impassioned sort of performance. You know, a lot of replays here of Proud Mary as people uh, look towards it. I and I I have a memory of being in. I worked at a radio station when I began in Niagara Falls. I think you've probably heard those stories from your wife, Alan. Yes. And um, going in the news van, and we went over the border and went into this crazy, might have been a little dive bar. It was a bit sketch. And the band was doing Proud Mary and invited us up. And we, a few of us going up and singing. I'll never, ever forget it, pretending to be... Tina Turner doing that song. It it really I know you can imagine it, but well, it was pretty good. It was pretty good. My sister was up there too. And but it there was something about that song too. And you know, Fogarty just was so grateful that she did the take on it and did the cover of it. But that song kind of epitomized her energy in a lot of ways. Yeah, it, it did. Uh, if you were familiar with the CCR version. Which is a fairly mm, straight ahead yeah. mid tempo rocker. Uh, okay, that was one way. But then, the, with with Tina and Ike, they started nice and slow, yeah. and then it gradually built up to this yeah. frenetic sort of appearance. That uh, this, you know, and you never forgot it. Of course, you had to see her do it live because you know, with with the dancing, and you know, I don't know how she managed to stay aboard those those high heels. <laughs> it's just amazing. Uh, yeah. But you know, it, it's. Again, nobody else like her. Nobody. No. And you know what else? Final comment. She had talent. I, I, you know, there are people who become famous and did at the time and circumstances, and they had a, a good voice, and somebody else wrote everything. But she had like old school Hollywood talent, didn't she? She could dance, and she could sing, and she had the looks. As we began, she had everything. She did. And then again, this is the result of those really, really, really tough weeks and months in the Chitlin circuit in the southern U.S. You had to be good to impress those audiences. Oh, yeah. You were and in trouble. You, <laughs> and, and she was, and she did. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.